waiting for change to come, knowing the battle's won, for you have never failed me yet. Your promise still stands, great is your faithfulness. Faithfulness, faithful. 
morning. As we seek to try to maintain some normalcy to our, our routine here, uh, as we enter in this time of communion and offering, and we want you to particularly communion with us at home and you know, find you uh, some crackers or a piece of bread or you know, some, some emblems to partake with it, some juice. And you know, Jesus, during the Last Supper, where he was together with the disciples, you know, he, he just took ordinary objects. He took the loaf of bread and the, the cup of wine and things that they would have just typically had every day, and he gave them a special meaning. And he does that same with us each and every day. He takes us ordinary people and, and gives us a special meaning. So as we partake in communion this morning, I want to share a, a meditation I found this week from uh, the Christian Standard, and it's titled Communion, communion in a Social Distant World. If you look up the word communion in the dictionary, you'd see it defined as intimate fellowship or rapport. It comes from the same word as community or communication or communal. Under normal circumstances, this is a communal experience. So, how do we accomplish this aspect of communion in a time of social distancing? First, we should remember that social distancing does not mean social isolation. For now, we are wise not to get together in large gatherings, but we can still find ways to, lead, to love one another, carry each other's burdens, and encourage one another. Pray for one another, and well, commune with one another. We just do it differently in these particular circumstances. Second, we can be grateful for the many things, and one of those things that we live in is this high-tech world in which we can be virtually present with one another via the internet and live streaming. It's not the same true, but we choose to be positive and grateful for what we have. Perhaps meeting in our building is canceled for now, but church is not canceled. Loving one another is not canceled. Devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer is not canceled. The Lord's Supper was instituted on a Thursday evening during a meal. We encourage you as you gather with your loved ones around the table in your homes to celebrate this meal together. Remembering, as you break bread, just as Jesus gave up his body on the cross to take away our sins and give us eternal life. And now, wherever we are in our living room or kitchens and offices, we celebrate this time together as a church. Take the bread and eat and the drink. And, and remember Jesus who sacrificed our, his body for us. And take the juice and drink. And remember the blood which Jesus shed for us. Millions of people from around the world join us this day as we remember Jesus. Remember, we are in close proximity or so or social distant from one another, this meal brings us together as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Dear Lord, as we come together this morning, Lord, while we may be physically separated, Lord, we come together spiritually. And Lord, as we come to this time of communion, a time to reflect upon the, the sacrifice that was made upon that cross, Lord, the body that was beaten, the blood that was shed. And Lord, as we lift up these emblems, this loaf and the cup, we ask your blessing upon them. But Lord, we ask that you draw us near to you. Lord, that we lay our sins and our transgressions at your feet. Ask for your grace and your forgiveness. And Lord, as... We each go through our struggles this week. May we remember this time that we can draw near to you and draw together as a body of believers. We raise this in Jesus' name. Amen. line and we do have a few who are here with us to worship uh, live and in person 
Uh, just an announcement along that particular line, until they lift the, the stay-at-home order here in the state of Ohio, we're going to encourage folks to stay at home and watch the service online if they're able to. And if you don't have online uh, streaming services, we'll get you DVDs of the service. Uh, we can get them to you on Sunday afternoon or sometime during the week. But it's a little bit on for all of us. We've had technical difficulties here this morning. And so if you're at home trying to watch the live streaming, I was thinking it would be a little bit like a strobe man. You guys remember when you were, um, uh, maybe when it was just when I was young, but you had like the lights, uh, strobe lights, and you could do like the robot. I think it's probably going to look like that today. So if you uh, see me uh, jumping and jiving, it's not me. It's the live streaming and the incredible, wonderful internet service that we have here. It's exceptionally slow. It was slow last night, and I was praying over it uh, as we had the little bit of flood here. And um, so we're just, it's a little bit better this morning, so bear with us, and uh, hopefully it's coming through to you just fine. We are talking about our Luke 3 and Me uh, sermon series. And of course, the Luke 3 and Me sermon series is about the genealogy of Jesus. And Christ is the one that we're all connected to, and so we're figuring out how we are connected to all those that are in his line, and this helps us in this particular study from Luke chapter 3, verse 23 and following. Now, we've been talking about the promised land part of the line of Christ. Uh, from Adam all the way up through uh, to Terah, we had the promised line uh, segment that we talked about. And then from Terah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're talking about the promised land part because during this part of the genealogy story, Jesus is providing a land for the people uh, or God is providing a land for the people to inhabit that would become the nation or the kingdom of Israel. And the reason Jacob is important to that is because of the name change for him later on in the story that we'll talk about here in just a bit. But we talked about Abraham and we talked about Isaac. Now we're talking about Jacob, Isaac's son. And we're going to call him Jocelyn Jacob today. Everybody at home say Jocelyn Jacob. You guys here can say that too. That just proves there are people here uh, worshiping with you. Jocelyn Jacob. Now we'll talk about what Jocelyn means in here just a, a little bit. But uh, the thing about Jacob and the lesson that we're going to learn is that we're always jostling with God about stuff. And Jacob did too. He was wrestling with him. We have a scene here that even illustrates that for us. But um, what I'm trying to help us better understand this morning is that we all kind of wrestle. We all jostle back and forth with God about stuff. But we're either wrestling with him uh, about judgment because of our sin or we're wrestling with him through justification where we're working out our salvation. And the reason that is important is because, as we'll discover, when you are wrestling with God over issues of judgment, that just drains you. It wears you out. It makes you lose hope. It makes us lose our focus in the future in life. But if we are wrestling with God through justification, that means that we have hope, that we have forgiveness, that we have salvation. We're just trying to work through that by overcoming our bad habits, bad decision-making process, and things like that. Now, as an illustration of this, I want to talk about how we as a nation have been jostling with something. All of us have been jostling with it. It's something we all have in common. And, uh, and I don't think that, I know the first thing you're thinking about is the best uh, thing that was on Netflix last week, that we all were trying to watch the same thing on Netflix. No, that's not it. The thing that we all have in common here in this country and also around the world that we're all battling with, we're all wrestling with, is this thing called the coronavirus. Now, you know, maybe two months ago you weren't even familiar, and I remember making a joke about it that we had coronavirus here in Dark County, and uh, there was not even the thought of that even in Ohio at that particular time. But now we even have reported cases here close to home. We're all struggling with it because it is something that is having an impact on us. It's trying to pin us down. It's trying to wear us out. It's trying to frustrate us. And that's where the word jostle comes in because the word jostle means to struggle or completely uh, or compete forcefully against. It means to wrestle with. 
And as we're wrestling with this thing called coronavirus, we're all feeling the pain because we're having to make sacrifices to win against the enemy. Now, for those who were around during World War II or those who are around the Great Depression, they might think what we're going through here is not a big deal. Hey, you get to go stay at home for a couple weeks and the government will pay you for that. And, you know, you, the worst thing is you may not be able to find your branded toilet paper at the local store, you know, something like that. That's suffering, really? Is it suffering to be able to sit in your jammies all day or your sweats or whatever your apparel is? I know that they're selling shirts out at Walmart, but, you know, nobody's buying pants. I wonder why. You know, you can sit at home in your underwear if you want to. And we do that. We call that struggling. Now, I know there's a serious side to this. I know there, there are people who are impacted by this, and it's a deadly disease for them. But this is where we're all trying to make kind of sacrifices. And our sacrifices for those who are more vulnerable are to stay at home and try to not be in contact with one another, to socially distance from each other. But we're all battling against this common enemy that we call coronavirus. Now, the thing that I think is important for us to understand about that is if we break it down, our struggle, and don't go off on a tangent here when I say this, but our struggle as it involves the coronavirus is really against God. And let me explain. Because... Uh, the coronavirus, any disease, any sin, any sickness is a part of the judgment God made on mankind back with Adam and Eve that we're going to struggle because of this thing called sin. And because of sin, death has been allowed to be a part of our experience. Now, when Adam and Eve were created, it was not part of the experience. After Adam and Eve sinned and because we sin in their likeness, we have that as a part of our experience. And what brings death? Disease, sickness, old age, things like that. You see, when we're really battling against this, we fight hard. And I heard one guy say, well, I don't necessarily, I'm not, I don't necessarily want to die. I'm not ready to go meet my maker. Maybe that's how you feel about this. But this is the common battle that we're all wrestling with, struggling with. We don't want a pandemic to overtake the world and millions and, and maybe even billions of people die and turn into zombies or anything like that. None of us want that, right? So I'm not saying this is a specific judgment against anyone or any group. Uh, it is just part of the greater judgment of God against us because we live in a world that is of death. Because of sin. But the other part of our struggle here, we're not just wrestling with God through this, but we're also, it's created another kind of wrestling match, and that is we're struggling with each other. It's created a greater wrestling match between different kinds of people, you know, young and old. This struggle between people has the Senate and Congress wrestling with each other, I think the greatest miracle in the world was that they were able to pass the stimulus package. Not that I'm necessarily happy about the fact that they did, but it's a miracle that they, that they were able to pass that in such a time as this. But they fought about it for a long time. They struggled with it, names back and forth. You know, we're, you're this and you're that. You're horrible. We're great. We're great. You're horrible. That kind of thing. So the Senate and Congress, they passed this Wonderful stimulus package, but it had to go through a battle royale, you know. We have the president and governors and mayors. They're all holding press conferences, and they're almost, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing that they don't have more broken arms because they all keep trying to pat themselves on the back that they're, you know, they're saving us and they're doing these things for us. And I appreciate, and I want us to pray for our leaders and all those different kinds of things, don't get me wrong, but there's just this, as they struggle against it, there is a public uh, propaganda that goes along with that too. You know, they have press people that are telling them, you got to go out and you got to say this, you got to do that. So we also have people who are battling for the big battle is for that last roll of paper, uh, toilet paper on the shelf there at whatever store that you're in. So we have people fighting with one another. Did you hear the story this last week where they're having to uh, have safe hours for the elderly to come in and shop? 
and they can come in and shop uh, early in the morning. And uh, there's even one store that's posting guards there because uh, old people were getting accosted. They were having things taken out of their baskets while they were trying to shop by other people. We got this battle going on. It's not good. I mean, it's horrible when those times of things happen. We have generations getting mad at other generations because we think that one generation will make the other generation sick or that the other generation, they still need that kind of attention and contact with the other generation and that will make them sick. So our jostling against this disease, it's caused healthcare professionals to be at a high level of stress. Right, Alan? You know, we got stress and it's, it's, uh, it, we're getting stressed over equipment and ventilators and masks and PEPs, whatever those things are. I think I said it right. Is it a PEP? PPEs. I didn't even say it right. So we're fighting over all these things. And, you know, it's just amazing that as we battle this thing called the coronavirus that's a part of the, the death sentence that we all live under as part of God's judgment, it makes us fight against one another as well. Now, there's a very valuable lesson in that, and hopefully we'll be able to learn that because as we break all this down fundamentally, we are jostling and wrestling and struggling because we want to live. And we're protecting what we think makes us live. And we're battling against the judgment of God we know that it's, which is fine, he doesn't mind if we fight for life and things like that, but we're battling against that judgment to, to stay alive, to be healthy. But what we realize is that most of the things that we suffer in this life are because of our poor decisions or the poor decisions of others. And we can point fingers and place blame wherever we want when it comes to this coronavirus thing. But God wants us to learn a very valuable lesson through it all. And that is instead of turning on him and turning on each other, we accept the lesson of justification that comes from him, the gift of salvation, the gift of hope, and live in that. So today in our Luke 3 and uh, me message, we call our attention to Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, who's a perfect illustration for us of this fundamental struggle with which we all jostle. We all wrestle with God daily over judgment and justification. We all struggle against the conditions and circumstances and people which are all part of this extension of God's judgment in our lives because we live in this world that's bound by sin for a time. And all God wants us to do is become like Jacob, the older Jacob, and discover full justification through God's grace. But this is way tougher than it might sound. And it was a tough lesson for Jacob to learn. And just like a tough lesson for us, it is something that is important for us. And today we'll use this story we find in the book of Genesis around the end of the 20s and into the 30s to learn about the justification of God Because honestly, just living in judgment all the time, it stinks. It just wears us out. So, just just so we're clear, let me explain what God's justification is and what it looks like and how Jacob plays into that. Now, Jacob would do many things in his life, which we will highlight today, which were pretty selfish. Because he was enslaved to his passions and pleasures. And we do the same thing. We make poor decisions because we are driven by our passions and pleasures. It caused him to live in conflict with those around him. If you're selfish, narcissistic, seeking your own passion, your own pleasure, it always causes you to bump heads with those who are around you because they're generally doing the same thing as well. And it's a battle for that last piece of pie. It causes us to live in conflict with those around us, like our, um, our uh, fathers, our, our brothers, our in-laws, our wives, our, and even with our Creator. But because God had a plan for Jacob and because God has a plan for us that is rich in mercy, we can find salvation through Christ, which He has poured out generously on us. 
because we're justified by grace. If you have your Bibles there at home, turn to Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 7. That's Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. There it says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs, having hope of eternal life. Now the reason that's important is because, as we'll learn from Jacob's life, he was the heir of promise. God had made a promise to his father Abraham through all the nations of the earth. You, uh, you will, uh, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed. Same thing to Isaac. And then he makes the same proclamation when he appears to Jacob. And it's funny how God appears to Jacob in the story. We'll kind of look at that here in just a second. But what was God trying to do? He is trying to help Jacob overcome his selfishness, his desire, his passion and pleasure, which put him at odds with everybody in his life. So that he could learn that through justification by God's grace, he could truly become the heir that had been of the promise that had been made to him. And we're going to learn that same lesson too. So we can spend most of our lives jostling with God over judgment like Jacob did, or we can spend the remainder of our days jostling with him through the process of justification. Paul said to the Philippians, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good promise. So we work out our salvation by wrestling with God each day as he seeks to pin us with justification instead of stifle us with judgment. Now, I had a short-lived wrestling career. My brother was a pretty good wrestler, so I thought about following in his footsteps. But I learned quickly that wrestling was not for me, because in my very first wrestling tournament, uh, I was in the position ready to go, and the referee blew the whistle, and the kid that I was wrestling, he took a step towards me, and he slapped me right in the face. And he slapped me hard. And while I was thinking, is this fair, I, the next thought I have is, why am I on my back and the referee pounding on the, the mat? And within just a few seconds, he said, you know, pin, you know, whatever it was that he said that day. But I had lost that match because when the guy hit me, I didn't know, you know, kind of it disoriented me. And then he took me down with one of his moves and then I was on my back and there was nothing I could do. So... I had no choice but to submit to a stronger and wiser wrestler. Now, he was stronger because he knew what to do. He was wiser because he knew all the moves. I was still pretty novice at it. So, I want to use that as an illustration of how we are to submit to God. Because we are to submit to the stronger and wiser wrestler that we compete with. And that is God. Our creator. Because the sooner that we do, the quicker we can live in justification. Once I was pinned, I got up, the coach told me what I did wrong, and then I repented of that, and then I did pretty good in the other matches that I did. I didn't win the rest of them, but I didn't lose the rest of them. So every day, God is working on us. He's trying to help us understand that he's wiser, stronger, that if we'll submit to him and work, our sal work out our salvation and working out, think about that like, uh, like you're at the gym working out and think of it just you're wrestling with God. He wants you to work out with him so that you could be reminded that you need to submit to his justification for your life because you're either living in one or the other. You're living in judgment or you're living in justification. So God worked out Jacob's salvation for years, and it took him a lot of years before he figured out what he was doing was wrong. He even appeared, when God appeared to him, like God did to Isaac and Abraham, he established the covenant with him that he had made with his father and grandfather. 
And if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis. We'll be in Genesis the rest of the time here. Genesis 28, verse 10 and following tells the story of Jacob and how he had a dream and how God was trying to get his attention. Genesis 28, verse 10. He, meaning Jacob, had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching all the way to heaven and the angels of God were sending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring, and I am with you and watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now this is one of those things where Jacob was in, had this dream, and God says, this is what I want you to know. I'm going to bless you. He has this dream when he's on the run from his brother Esau. We'll talk about that more here in just a second. But God has established with Jacob the same covenant that he has established with you through Christ Jesus. He has put, on, put you on notice that he will wrestle and jostle with you daily as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling until you submit to him in his justification by his grace blessing. Now the question for us is how long are we going to how long will it be until we just submit to his justification because he's pinning us with his judgment already. I guess you could think of it this way. You can think of you're wrestling with God and if you're wrestling with him and he pins you with judgment, he's got his stinky armpit over your nose, you know. And you're just suffering because it stinks and he won't let you up. But if you're uh, wrestling with him through justification, once you submit, once he pins you, he lets you up and he shows you the way that you need to go. Which way do you want to live? Do you want to live in the stinky armpit or do you want to live in the justification of God? So God has established this, uh, this covenant with Jacob and it reflects the covenant he has established with us. Because Jacob's story, it started before he was ever born. You remember the story we talked about last week when he was in Rebecca's womb? The scripture says the babies, listen, jostled each other within her. That's why we call him Jocelyn Jacob. Before he was ever born, Jacob was Jocelyn with his brother Esau in the womb. Esau and Jacob fought with each other before they were ever born, and it caused their mom such stress and great pain that she inquired of God, God, what's going on inside of me? When Rebecca was, uh, excuse me, when we hear this story about Rebecca and the jostling that was taking place, you remember that when the babies were born, Jacob had a hold of Esau's heel as Esau was coming out. And then we knew that that was just a, a precursor to everything that was going to happen in their life because we know as the story continues, Jacob and Esau fought with one another and even uh, Jacob got his birth, got Esau's birthright, and then stole from Jacob his or Esau his blessing, and that made Esau so mad that in Genesis twenty-seven, verse forty-two through forty-five, we pick up the story between Jacob and Esau, where it says, "When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, which is, I'm going to kill that little punk," that's paraphrase. She sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, "Your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you." Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban Haran. Stay with him until your, brother, uh, until your brother's fury subsides. And when your brother is no longer angry with you uh, and forgives you for what you did to him, I'll send for you and you can come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in the same day? So Rebecca knows that his son, her son Esau is mad at his brother uh, Jacob. And so she intervenes and she says, get on out of here because he's trying to kill you. He hates you. There's anger. There's vengeance. Now let me ask you this question. Have you ever jostled with a sibling, a brother, or a sister? 
You know, it's amazing how much of God's judgment is expressed through our battles with our family members, especially our brothers and sisters. I mean, how many years have you wasted by, uh, by allowing your fury and anger or vengeance to corrupt your relationship with your brother or sister? Now, I've told this story before, but we used to have a kid who lived here in the neighborhood, and um, I noticed that he had an uncle that lived outside of town, and I asked him about his uncle. He says, oh, I don't know anything about him. I said, why not? Because he's mad at my dad, and they haven't talked for 20 years. They just live half a mile from each other. So, you know, do, is that how we want to live our life, in that kind of anger, and that kind of vengeance, that kind of hatred? See, in this story, we have this jostling that takes place between family members, and um, only God would be able to soften Esau's heart, but it would take years for him to do that for Esau, so much so that years later when they would meet again, Jacob said to Esau, If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me, for to see your face is seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Now, 20 years or so has gone by at this particular point. So maybe um, if it took that long for you, you know, you had that time to kind of reflect and think about, and then you saw your brother. But remember, in this particular story, Jacob sent out his servants, and then he sent out others uh, to kind of soften the blow because he thought Esau would come out and exact his revenge on him. But he says to him, Now that I see you, I see the face of God. Now maybe if we see the face of God in our siblings, it's because we're seeing what God has in in store for us both in a long-term plan. And it would be easier for us to allow God's justification by grace to heal any broken relationships that we have. And that's the only way for sibling relationships to be healed is for us to see the face of God in those that are angry with us and for them to see the face of God in us. You see, God has a plan. And sure, they were young when they were fought, and they, you know, back and forth. But if that were been an isolated incident, we'd just say, well, Jacob, he just had a problem with his brother. And maybe you don't have any issues with your siblings, but what about the judgment you feel from your in-laws, so to speak? Now, your father-in-law, your mother-in-law, Have they always fully accepted you or was there, is there judgment against you because you will never be good enough for their precious little angel? When Elizabeth and I were dating, I still picture her father carrying a baseball bat around the house. Um, And one night we we were up late and we were watching TV or something and he appears at the door out of the dark with a baseball bat in his hand. And he says, Liz, and then, you know, something about you guys need to wrap it up. And uh, we lived a long, you know, we lived a long distance apart. So every moment that we could have with each other was important for us to to have. But I still picture Paul B. Now, he didn't weigh more than 95 pounds and uh, was not a very tall man. But, man, if he's holding this bat, he was pretty, pretty intimidating. Well, I think eventually uh, Paul uh, accepted me, and I, you know, so I didn't worry about it too much longer after that. But has your, has your in-law, have they always accepted you or there's still some kind of tension? Now, remember this story here. Jacob had some kind of father-in-law. Uh, that's for sure. He goes to see his great uncle Laban, and somehow Laban tricks him into working for 14 years for him to have Rachel's hand in marriage, but not before Jacob was saddled with her older, less beautiful sister Leah. So notice how I did that. I didn't say ugly. I said less beautiful. So under Jacob's blessing from God, Laban's family became rich. But Jacob was even richer. And that made Laban's family, his his sons, become jealous of Jacob. Then in Genesis 31 verse 2 it says, And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. So Jacob devised a plan to get out of Dodge, so to speak. And then Laban, after Jacob left, said, I'm going to chase that boy down. He's running away with my kids. Now, if this were a, you know, a movie, it would be much more dramatic than what it just says here. But you got to kind of picture them uh, trekking across the, the desert plain. And, and Jacob and his family are trying to move along with all the goats and little animals that they have and their children and the 12 sons and the daughter and all that kind of stuff. And then Laban's, here he comes, he's going to come get him. And 
you know, why have that kind of relationship with your father-in-law? Why have that kind of relationship with an in-law? When Laban, when Laban finally chased him down, he said to him, What have you done? You've deceived me, and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of timbrels and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren, my daughters, goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. That's in Genesis 31, 26 through 28. Do you think Jacob thought that's the kind of send-off he'd have from Laban? Probably not. But this illustrates for us how Jacob was seeking after his own. Now, God was blessing him in all of this, by the way. There's some, there's some context to this story. I would encourage you to read it. Read about the speckled and striped little goats and that kind of thing so that you can have some context of what all that means. But how many foolish things have you done in the eyes of your in-laws when you thought you were doing what was best for your family? I wonder how Elizabeth's family felt when we moved out here from Oklahoma and we came out here to Green Acres because it was the place to be. You know, we were city folks, city dwellers. Uh, and uh, Elizabeth was a, a little bit like the character from Green Acres, the wife. She still dressed up nicely, and then someone taught her how to can and that kind of stuff, and she finally, you know, changed a little bit, but when I mean, you look at her now, she just she's still as gorgeous as ever, and she dresses real nicely. I love you, sweetheart. See, this is go, going out to the whole world, so I get extra credit for that one, right? So, but here we have Jacob taking his family, and Laban's pursuing them, but how many foolish things have we done like that? No matter what we tell ourselves, it stings when we think our in-laws disapprove of us. And you can be married for 50 years, and if your in-laws are still around, it's, they can still make you feel bad about yourself. But the only way Jacob could overcome the judgment of Laban was to finally accept that he had made a covenant with God, and he needed to honor that and move his family to the promised land and even though he might not have had the purest motives in doing so, he still had that in the back of his mind that he had a home that he needed to go to. And our only chance of overcoming judgment, which stems from the imperfection of family, is to honor our covenant with God as well. Nobody ever marries the perfect person. Nobody ever marries into a perfect family. Everybody say amen. Amen. So how are you going to deal with that? Well, we all have to kind of consider the covenant we're making with God, and that is he wants us to live in justification, not in judgment. Instead of judging one another and living in that judgment and the anger and the vengeance and all the disappointment that creates, we need to think about the covenant of God and how he has justified us freely, set us free from our sin, how he's helping us to grow, and we all live in obedience to Christ in that covenant. The good thing is when you do that, it works everything out for good. Now, you may never have had any problems with your siblings and never had any problems with your in-laws, but if you're married, you have had, you know, I, you knew where I was going with that. I guarantee you've had problems because the judgment of sin extends into that relationship in many ways. Now, Jacob's problem was he married sisters. And I don't advise that today, but he married sisters who were very competitive when it comes to having kids. So between Rachel and Leah and their servants Bilhah and Zilpah, Jacob had 12 sons and at least one daughter. Some uh, historians think he probably had other daughters as well, but they didn't mention daughters unless they were part of the story. Rachel and Leah, they gave names to their sons. And if you look at that record there in Genesis 30, all the names, or 31, all the names have to do with I'm spiting my sister or I have victory over my sister and so I'm going to name my child this, this name. So we got a couple of sisters here today that, that are in the audience. Just think about, did you name your kids just to spite your sister? No? <laughs> Nothing like that? I mean, it's like, uh, I don't know what name we'd give our kids today, but I, if I spited my brothers or my sister, my first child would be, I hate you both. You know, something like that. Whatever Greek word that would be, that's the word that would use. So we have, uh, we have this kind of dynamic that's taking place, and it's all happened because the Scripture teaches us that uh, Jacob 
He didn't help the matter because it says his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And she knew it. Both of them did. Now, if you were the wife that was lesser loved than the other wife, wouldn't that make you a little bit mad most of the time? But any spouse would feel rejected and neglected if they thought their husband or wife had a greater love than their love for them. doesn't have to be another wife or another husband. It could be anything. And when we allow other things or thoughts to take priority over our spouses, the judgment of sin will soon create hurt and havoc in our relationship. There will be bitterness and jealousy and control issues that will develop. And that's why we need to model the husband-wife relationship after that of Christ and of the church. Now, Jacob was not the perfect example of that, but he would be the father of the one who would, and that is Christ. And when we look at the picture of the husband-wife relationship in the book of Ephesians, where Christ is the bride uh, or the groom and the, the church is the bride, and we are to submit, there's that word, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It is so that together, as we jostle with each other, God is wrestling with us through that relationship so that we together will submit to the joy of justification by grace in our marriages. I always tell my young couples that I do counseling with, it's not so much important what your opinion is or what your spouse's opinion is. We really should together discover what God's thought is and then work together towards that because if we submit together towards God's thoughts on things, His, His ideas on things, we grow closer together and we lose out on the judgment in the process. Now, you might be asking why I've been using all these wrestling metaphors. And as I mentioned, I was not a championship wrestler. My brother was, but that's another story. And I don't hate him because he was a better wrestler than I was. I hated him because he used all his wrestling moves on me when he came home from practice. That's, that's a different thing. No, I don't hate my brother. I love him. But in Genesis thirty-two twenty-four, we have the story and why I use this metaphor wrestling. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him, it says, wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Uh, then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and overcome. Jacob said, please call me your name, tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. Why is Jacob called Israel? Because he struggled with God and with man and eventually he overcame. Now we are children of Israel in that sense, when we struggle with God and with men and we overcome. And it seems we're always jostling with someone or something because that's life. But we only become children of Israel when we overcome our struggles with God and man through justification. Hebrews 8, 8 through 12 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with my people Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will they treat, uh, teach, their, uh, teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Now, of course, this is a picture of Christ and the relationship that we have through justification where he forgives us of our wickedness and he forgives us of our sins and he remembers them no more and he allows us to live in the freedom, of, uh, fr freedom from those sins in our lives. Now, all of you are here today and all of you are watching today online as we stream this service. Um, 
and again, I just appreciate your patience as we're working through all these different kinds of things. This is an extreme measure that's been taken because of the pandemic struggle we have with a virus that is part of the judgment of sin in this world. It has created stress and strain between us and those to whom we must submit and listen. We will go through this time of testing and we will all be overcomers. The true test is spiritual, not physical. It is just one more it is just one more match, wrestling match between us and God in which we recognize his superior power and wisdom and we learn to submit to it because when we submit to him, he allows us to live in justification and we become overcomers. We covenant with him to write his laws in our minds and hearts to be his people because we know he forgives us and he forgets our sins. This is justification by grace. And this is what makes us more than overcomers. And this was the picture of Jacob that we need to appreciate. <laughs> Last night, I received some pictures from Alan, and it showed a river running through the backside of our church property here that we normally call an alley. One of the catch basins right behind the church had clogged somehow, and so the, the water uh, came up and it... Uh, went down the, down the hill, and we, we, there's a little hill that we live on, and it was going down the new part of the building, and the water came up into that new part of the building. And um, so uh, Alan was letting us know, and then I saw Jerry was on his way with his shop back. And so I thought, well, I was finishing up dinner. I finished up dinner, and I started loading stuff up. And, and when I got up here, the amazing thing was Jerry and Randy and Alan were here and Wesley and and Zane were here, and they had already got all the water sucked up and, and drilled holes in the wall so that we could air things out. And my greatest contribution was uh, getting my daughter and my wife's dehumidifiers and donating them for the, for the cause for, uh, for a day or two. Oh, by the way, Jerry, they want those back as soon as possible. So as I was on my way in, I was just thinking about the, the you know, this is funny, you know, we we're, we're, we're got the coronavirus that's going on, and uh, we're supposed to all stay put, you know, stay in our homes and different things like that. And then we have this flood. And, you know, I knew that when I got here, it might be a little difficult for, for us to kind of deal with it. But I just thought, well, you know, this is an opportunity for us to show that we live in justification, not judgment. This wasn't something that is to hurt us or to to make it more impossible for us to church to deal with things, but there'll be something that God will bring out of this that's even more incredible because we know we live in justification. And the other important thing is we have people that we do it together with. And so for Jerry and Alan, uh, who are on our eldership team, and all those who help with whatever comes up, I'm just so appreciative because I know we're, there's not a one of this that are in this alone. And as we think about this battle, this wrestle, this jostle, remember, you're never alone. Sometimes we'll have to, uh, you know, make some accommodations so that we don't uh, spread our germs to one another, but we still are all one. And as we gather today, we gather as one, whether you're in a home or you're here in this building, we are gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when we gather, two or three or more gather in his name, the Bible says what? He is there with us. So wherever you are, know God's with you today. And he wants you to wrestle through this by seeing it as an opportunity for justification, not judgment. That through it all, we'll overcome and we'll be better because of our faith and our trust in him as we work through all of this as a part of our salvation. May God bless you with this message. And thank you for listening and thank you for being here today. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to uh, have our service here and to stream it live. And I pray, Lord, that you just bless those who are at home listening and that they've been able to hear and see what they've needed to in order to be encouraged today. And as we continue to try to work out all the glitches and the slow internets and all this stuff, I just pray, Lord, that your hand will be in it all and that we'll see it as an opportunity to overcome not to live in judgment or fear, not frustration, not anger, none of those things,
but to live in your justification because we know that if we submit to you, that you'll allow us to work out everything as a part of our salvation, and that will make us so strong that we'll be able to overcome anything that we ever face. So as we learn that lesson from Jacob, as he wrestled with you, let us learn that lesson in our own life as we wrestle with you too. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Let all God's people say, Amen.